1: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, again, we're having a chat about Benjamin Franklin, a man who began life as a humble printer before rising to become a wealthy newspaper magnate, a scientist, an inventor, and then, of course, a famed politician and diplomat. Franklin's influence on U.S. history is immense, as you probably know. He's one of the most famous of the American founding fathers, and such is his fame that many Americans even are surprised to learn that he was actually never president. Uh, But his influence goes so much further than just uh, on the early history of the United States. Franklin was an avid scientist. He investigated electricity and oceanography and meteorology, so much more. And he also invented a number of very useful devices, many of which are actually still in widespread use even today. Uh, Franklin wrote extensively. He printed his writings himself or under a pseudonym. Um, writing about everything from day-to-day moral conduct to grand, sweeping ideas about the future of the colonies and their their relationship with the British Crown. He had an enormously strong impact on the politics of the British colonies in North America, both in the Americas and over in Europe, where we actually spent much of his life. But uh, on top of all this rather more serious stuff that he wrote, he also wrote some very amusing and funny pieces of writing, which we will, of course, be uh, chatting about today, don't you worry. Franklin, as you'll find out throughout this episode, was just one of those people who lived an absolutely full life. He carpaid, it seems, every DM that he got the chance to. He seemed to be into just a, a bit of everything. And so as a result, there is, of course, so much for us to get across today. But before we begin, uh, thanks go to alert listener Rachel Peters for getting in touch with the, the suggestion we get across Benjamin Franklin. Terrific suggestion. Thanks very much, Rachel, mate. But let's get to it here. Let's begin the story of one of the most famous figures from U.S. history, Benjamin Franklin. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 17th of January, 1706, to the city of Boston, which at this time in its history was, of course, part of the colony of Massachusetts. Uh, there is no such thing as the United States, still 70 years away from that. Obviously, we haven't even met Ben Franklin yet, so how could there be a U.S.? Um, anyway, this is the date that Benjamin Franklin was born to a Puritan couple, Josiah Franklin and of Folger Franklin, Now, Josiah had 17 children with uh, his two wives. Benjamin was number 15 overall and number 8 to Abia. And, I mean, I'll remind you, they're Puritans. They're not Catholics. I thought Catholics were bad, but bloody hell, there's a Puritan with 17 kids. What's going on there? Anyway, young Franklin, sharp as a tack. As a young kid, he really was getting up to no good uh, with all the other local boys uh, around the Charles River in Boston. Uh, Eventually, he went to school for just two years as a kid. That's all his dad could afford for him. Not surprising, considering he had 17 kids to look after. But um, even his rather limited schooling didn't stop Franklin from learning. A, A lifelong learner he was, even after finishing at school at the age of just 10 Franklin read and read and read and read and continued to teach himself about all sorts of different things just by self-directed reading and, and his natural natural curiosity about the world. Um, at the age of 12, he began work as an apprentice to one of his older brothers, the 21-year-old James Franklin, uh, who had a business as a printer. Uh, now, we've talked about printing on the show before, episode 217, Get Across It, big part of the story of Benjamin Franklin here, as you'll see, an enormously important technology. And, and Franklin harnessed this technology uh to do what he thought he could to improve the lot of people living in the colonies in North America at the time. Anyway, becomes a becomes an apprentice with his brother, learning the ins and outs of being a printer, and in 1721, at the age of just 15, Franklin and his brother establish one of the very first newspapers in the Americas, the New England Courant. Uh, and even at this early stage in his life, Franklin was pretty forthcoming with his criticism of the British colonial authorities. After five years, the paper was actually shut down for publishing inflammatory and seditious content against the British. So, when we when we talk about the United States being a, a nation born out of out of revolution, rebellion against the colonial authorities, and when we put Benjamin Franklin as one of the figures who was instrumental in you know aiding this revolution and, and making sure it was a success. He really did get off to a very early start, stirring people up against the British. I mean, all the way back in his younger years, you know, as a teenager, he's, uh, he's agitating against the colonial authority. So he was, he was at the gates like a bloody greyhound when it came to campaigning against British authority in the colonies. Anyway, the newspaper, this, the New England Courant, right, it's uh, a very notable newspaper, not just because it was one of the earliest newspapers in the Americas, but also it was the first place, first place of very many places, where franklin's writing was published he wrote under a pseudonym mrs silence do good uh, and he even hid the fact that it was his writing that he was the true author of the stuff that was published he hid this from his brother for a long time although he eventually found out and we'll come look we'll come back to his writing we're going to talk about his writing in uh, in greater detail a bit later on we'll talk about it in more in a more general sense but for now we'll continue with franklin's story um with him at the age of 17 with the age of 17, he actually left both his apprenticeship and his home in Boston behind, striking out for Philadelphia, the city that today is most famously associated with him. And it was there in 1723 after arriving, he did some work in some printing shops before taking a trip over to London, first of many that he would take throughout his years. Uh, he spent he spent a couple of years over there, worked in London, in, in Britain as a, as a printer, before finally returning to Philadelphia in 1726. And, uh, and back in the colonies, he continued his trade as a printer in 1728. He set up his own printing house with another bloke, whose name was Hugh Meredith, and they together published the Pennsylvania Gazette. And the Pennsylvania Gazette would go on to become one of the most popular, successful, and well-respected newspapers in the colonies. And it was a very big reason, by, in fact, the reason, really, behind Franklin's eventual rise to prominence and his widespread fame. Franklin published his own writing in The Gazette along with news articles, classified ads lost and found notices stories, reader letters, all sorts of other stuff. But Franklin's writing more than anything else remained a very popular and successful part of the newspaper and this had this had a couple of different consequences right We'll, we'll get into some of the more important uh, results of Franklin's writing kind of taking off like it did Firstly, through his writing, through the, the wide dissemination of, of Franklin's writing, he was able to cultivate an image of himself as a hardworking, sensible, sincere and well-educated young man, which in fairness, he was for the most part. This comes back to his Puritan upbringing. Franklin was a big proponent of these, these, fur- these Puritan values of, of thrift and industry and all the rest of it. Um, but he took this a little bit further because he kind of took on a role through his writing as something of a moral instructor even as he even at a young age right he was offering life lessons and moral advice to his readers in the gazette and nowhere was this more evident than with him publishing not just his paper but also a very famous annual almanac Poor Richard's Almanac. Now, you may you may have heard of this, particularly if you're in your, if you're American. It's a very very famous almanac. Uh, An almanac, for those who don't know, is a, a book published every year with, uh, well, with look with with all sorts of different stuff in it. Right? Poor Richard's Almanac uh, had everything from agricultural planting schedules and seasonal weather for- forecasts to Oceanic tide tables and solar and lunar calendars. And it also had things like games and puzzles and wordplay and other, other amusing and interesting diversions. And so it was, it was filled with, filled with all sorts of stuff, right? Uh, reference material, ways to pass the time, all sorts of things. But Paul Richards' almanac was, was very famous for its moral instruction and, and particularly its proverbs, many famous sayings and idioms that are still in common American use even today originated in poor Richard's almanac or even if they didn't originate there they were made very popular by the fact that the almanac was published for 20 years and had a huge readership right and even if Franklin didn't himself author all of these uh, these proverbs even if he just nicked them from other sources and put them in the uh, in the almanac he had a he had a big big role in making them as famous as they are let me let me hit you with some of them here <clears throat> Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's from the Almanac. Fish and visitors stink in three days. Very true. Uh, To err is human, to repent divine. We've all heard that one. But there's actually a third bit, to persist devilish, which I quite like. Um, How about this one? Don't throw stones at your neighbours if your own windows are glass. Uh but my personal favourite from poor Richard's Almanac, right? So you you've already you can already see some very, very famous ones. This is one that I wish got a little bit more famous because it's absolutely terrific. Have a listen to this one. The greatest monarch on the proudest throne is obliged to sit upon his own ass. Which I think is just terrific. I think we should... That that one slipped through the cracks. We really should be bring, bringing that one back. Now, you might be wondering about the most famous saying to come from Poor Richard's Almanac. You'll be saying, well, hang on one second. What about a penny saved is a penny earned? And we all love a goodwill, actually, on this show, don't we? A penny saved is a penny earned never actually appeared in Poor Richard's Almanac, even though it is very famously associated with the Almanac. No, it was actually published as... A penny saved is tuppence clear. Basically the same thing, but interesting to learn how uh, how it has changed over time. And, of course, very useful as well, actually, for your friends and your enemies and people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. If you want to turn some of your friends into enemies, here's a great way to do it. Just being a, a fussy nitpicker with the origins of sayings like this. Anyway. Franklin denied being the author of Poor Richard's Almanac. Uh, he said that all the almanacs were actually written by a bloke named Richard Saunders. And while writing as Richard Saunders in the almanac, he denied, he denied that Franklin had written them in character. But obviously, it was very obvious that Franklin wrote these almanacs. His style is absolutely unmistakable. Very unpretentious prose with, with, uh, with a cunning and biting wit and, and a self-deprecating sense of humour. You can, you can immediately tell Franklin's writing. Anyway, Almanac was published, uh, this Almanac was published every year for over two decades, as I mentioned, and it exemplified much of what Franklin sought to achieve with his printing business and his writing, to offer moral guidance to his readers and encourage these Puritan values of hard work, frugality, community, and education. But there was another way in which Franklin was also seeking to influence his readers, and this brings us to another of the important consequences of the success of the Pennsylvania Gazette, the political consequences. Franklin was, won't surprise you to learn, a sharp critic of the British and their colonial rule in the Americas. He, we, we talked about how he got off to a very early start with doing this and he didn't let up. He was a fierce believer in free speech. He was an outspoken anti-authoritarian. And in the lead up to the American Revolution, the Gazette was a very powerful political tool in changing hearts and minds and fostering sympathy for an open rebellion against the British. Franklin used his newspaper to publish content that openly opposed British rule and supported the idea of a republic based on personal virtue. Again, tying in with the moral instruction that we've already talked about. However, we are getting a little ahead of ourselves with the talk of rebellion against the colonial government in the British colonies. That's still several decades ago away. So we'll come back to Franklin's role in the revolution a little bit later on uh, in the show. For now, let's move into the 1730s and talk about some of the stuff that Franklin got up to around this time. In 1730, he had a common law marriage with a woman named Deborah, uh, who had already been married to a bloke named John Rogers. Now, Rogers... Bit of an ordinary fella, to be honest. He fled with Deborah's money and was never seen again, which meant that Deborah actually couldn't officially remarry properly, right? She couldn't take a second husband while she was still technically married to this bloke who, uh, who did a runner. So this meant that, uh, that she and Benjamin entered into a common law marriage. And together they had two children, uh, only one of which survived, sadly, to adulthood after he succumbed to a smallpox. Um, and also, the two of them raised Franklin's extramarital child, whose name was William Franklin. Uh, his bir- the birth mother of William Franklin is uh, is still unknown today. But he, Ben Benjamin, had William before he married uh, before he married Deborah. Um, but interesting, interesting thing about William Franklin, right? William grew up to be an ardent supporter of the British monarchy. Interestingly enough, he opposed his father politically as a very prominent and outspoken loyalist, uh, and en- ended up actually eventually in exile in Britain. Right after the revolution was was all done and dusted, and, and the Americans uh, emerged victorious. So, I mean, <laughs> there's estrangement from your old man, and then there is being on the wrong side of a revolutionary war, and ended up en- ending up being exiled to half a world away. But there's another very interesting thing about William Franklin, right? William Franklin also had a child out of wedlock with an unknown woman and this child was also named William and most incredibly the younger William was born on the same day as his father the 22nd of February exactly 30 years apart so both Benjamin Franklin and his son William had had extramarital sons called William born on the 22nd of February how is that for a coincidence anyway The younger William Franklin, by the way, he ended up siding with his grandfather during the Revolutionary War and actually worked for Benjamin as his secretary much later in life uh, while he was living in in Paris during during the war. But, again, we'll we'll get to all that in due course. Back to the 1730s. Franklin is becoming increasingly successful, increasingly famous, and increasingly wealthy as a printer and newspaperman. Um, in fact, his newspaper business was so successful that he set up additional newspapers in other American cities. He established one of the continent's very first newspaper networks. Um, and uh, on top of this, began publishing his almanac. He founded the Library Company of Philadelphia, a subscription library that was designed to give people in the city uh, greater access to books, uh, which at the time, was not an e- books weren't an easy thing to come by. They were much less commonly available compared to how, you know, how they are today, for instance. Uh, Franklin also established the Union Fire Company in 1736, one of the first volunteer firefighting groups in the Americas, and in 1737 was appointed as the Postmaster of Philadelphia, and in time he would be appointed as the very first Postmaster General of the United States. So it's very clear to see that that uh, that Franklin played a very prominent role in in public life in Philadelphia. He really is a leading figure. He's going around establishing libraries and fire brigades. He's he's the postmaster of the city, and, and it doesn't stop there as well. In 1743, he established the American Philosophical Society, which, like the Library Company of Philadelphia, still around today. Its headquarters are right next to Independence Hall. You can go and visit them. Uh, and in fact, as we move now into the 1740s. Franklin expanded his interests enormously and began to spend time and energy on things that weren't just printing and establishing various societies and groups and organisations. Instead, the, the 1740s and much of the 1750s was when Franklin emerged as a scientist, as an inventor. And his writing reflects this as he began to write on all sorts of topics, as we'll come to. But before we do that, I want to talk about one other area of his writing. I mentioned before that he did write very many amusing pieces of literature. And I want to, I want to talk about one very briefly here. One that he wrote in 1745 called advice to a friend on choosing a mistress. Now, this piece of writing is uh, exactly what you might expect it to be. It is advice to a friend on choosing a mistress. And while some of the stuff in there hasn't aged super well, there are some absolutely terrific lines in it all the same, right? Franklin's position was, this is what he argued in this piece of writing, his position was that uh, if you're a bloke who is seeking a mistress rather than a wife, that you should go after an older lady rather than a young one, and uh, this slightly surprising opinion was very well justified by uh, a bunch of different reasons that Franklin laid out in this piece of writing. Uh, For instance, one of his thoughts on why an older lady is preferable is because there is no hazard of children which, irregularly produced, may be attended with much inconvenience. Uh, Or that older women are just better company because as they have more knowledge of the world and their minds are better stored with observations, their conversation is more improving and more lastingly agreeable. Or, uh, once you're in bed with the lights off, as in the dark, all cats are grey, the pleasure of corporal enjoyment with an old woman is at least equal and frequently superior, every knack being, by practice, capable of improvement. So Franklin with this is basically saying that the longer you've been around the traps, the better route you're going to be, which, you know, look, maybe he's got a point. I don't know. But Franklin certainly had a way with words. You can't deny that. And this letter, as as funny as parts of it are, is actually a very important letter in a different sense altogether. It was a critical document in overturning U.S. obscenity laws in the 1950s. Federal judges used it to point out how one of the founding fathers of the U.S. would have been prosecuted under federal obscenity laws had this piece of writing been published in the 1950s and not, you know, 200 years earlier. So it's very clear to see Franklin's political legacy enormous and very long lasting. Centuries after his death, even today, Franklin is still a towering figure in US history and US politics. But even back then, you know, in the 1740s, in the 1750s, this bloke was a towering figure in the colonies that would go on to become the united states and so engrossed in public life and in other stuff science and invention we'll come to that so engrossed in all of these new interests and responsibilities did franklin become that he actually was more or less forced to move on from his printing business in 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 1747 He handed responsibility of his printing business over to his foreman, a bloke whose name was David Hall, uh, just to free up some time for himself to focus on other things like science and invention and, of course, politics. His involvement in public affairs and politics, using his newspaper empire to support the political movements that he was aligned with, only grew and grew. In 1748, he was elected as a Philadelphia councilman. In 1749, as a justice of the peace. In 1751, he was elected to the Pennsylvania Assembly. And he used his growing political influence to do some very important work that was actually of great benefit to the people living in Pennsylvania at the time. For instance, Franklin played a big role in the establishment of the Pennsylvania Hospital, the very first hospital built in the British colonies. And then later on in the 1750s, Franklin was also instrumental in the founding of universities like the University of Pennsylvania. And this is just just some of the examples of the things that Franklin did as a statesman, as someone whose political influence and fame was was only growing and growing as, as time went on. But that's all boring. We can move on. And let's talk instead about some of the cool inventions and science that Franklin is so famous for even today. In 1742, he invented the Franklin Stove, a stove designed to provide more heat to the room that it was in, although this wasn't his best work. It didn't sell particularly well. It wasn't actually until another inventor came along, uh, an inventor named David Rittenhouse. Uh, Rittenhouse made some key improvements to the Franklin Stove, and then it caught on and eventually was a bit more popular. Um, But Throughout the 1740s, Franklin also spent some time investigating meteorology. There's a famous story about him that contends uh, that in 1743, Franklin missed the opportunity to observe and take notes on a lunar eclipse thanks to a large storm that blew in and covered his view in in Philadelphia. But he had planned, he had had a backup plan in case his view was obscured, and he'd asked his brother in... uh, I don't know which brother. He had bloody nine of them, so it could have been any of them. I don't know which one it was. Anyway, he'd asked his brother in Boston to also take notes and send them through to him. But that day when the storm had come in, there were prevailing winds to the northeast. Boston is to the northeast of Philadelphia. And so Franklin was very downcast to think that even over in Boston, right, his brother wouldn't be able to take these observations because the storm would have blown along with the prevailing winds to the northeast and blocked his view as well. So he was stunned when his brother sent through the requested notes and observations with a story about how he'd managed to watch this eclipse completely unobscured by any storm or anything like that and franklin's going what the hell's what the bloody hell's going on here there was this storm cloud that came in it was blowing you know the winds were blowing to the northeast surely the storm front would have moved along with the wind and ended up in boston obscuring his view as well but no no franklin When he learned that this storm didn't actually reach Boston, it should have, that's the way the winds were blowing, of course, Franklin ended up correctly proposing that prevailing winds don't actually control the direction or only at least have a very minimal impact on the direction in which a storm moves. And this was a huge revelation in the field of meteorology and went on to have a lasting impact in the way that meteorologists understood how storms worked and how winds worked and how the two interacted with each other franklin was also very interested in population demographics he correctly forecast that in time the population of the u.s would outstrip the population of britain and he set up population models uh, that laid out what this population growth would look like and made observations about the consequences of the oncoming growth that he predicted, um, how farmland would need to be established in America for this growing population. Uh, and this strongly influenced the field of population studies with his investigations into population growth. He really had a knack for it and he seemed to get a, a fair bit right when just charting out the, the demographics of the growing, uh, the growing population in the colonies. Uh, And on top of this, he didn't stop inventing stuff either. In 1752, he invented a a new type of urinary catheter, of all things, after his brother, again, don't know which one, had a terrible time with kidney stones. He invented a catheter that was flexible rather than the ones that were in use at the time that were rigid and therefore very, very painful, as they were put into your your old fella. Um, But with all all that out of the way, let's talk about Franklin's most famous scientific endeavours, His efforts to investigate, of course, electricity, and specifically the properties of lightning. Franklin was fascinated by electricity, uh, and in his time, human understanding of of electricity was, um, well, rather limited, I think we can safely say. So much so that scientists referred to electricity as a fluid and considered that the static electricity created by rubbing glass was somehow very different to the static electricity created by rubbing amber. These were considered to be two different types of electrical fluid. Now, Franklin, after researching and investigating this question, he proposed that, and correctly so, he proposed that they were indeed not different types of electrical fluid, but the same type of fluid in different forms. So it didn't Quite get all the way there. He was right about half of it. Didn't quite understand that electricity isn't a fluid, but hey, look, we're getting there. Other scientists like William Watson were making the same proposals as Franklin around the same time, so he was definitely on the money there. But Franklin also had uh, quite an influence on some of the terminology that we commonly associate with electricity. He was the first person to describe electrical charges as positive and negative. He also discovered that electrical charges are conserved within isolated systems without loss. This is the principle of conservation of charge. Uh it's a a foundational part of the study of electricity. And uh, in 1748 he built a very rudimentary battery, not actually not actually a prop, proper battery before before all the electricity nerds are, uh, are sending emails in. Well, no, it's actually more of a capacitor. Yes, it is more of a capacitor. But still whatever, it could hold a charge. It's, you know, for for the layperson out there, it was it was a very basic form of of battery um and he he was that keen on electricity that he was really really enthusiastic in finding practical applications right for this power now this is of course before you know you could flick a light switch and, and your house would be illuminated just like that no franklin spent a lot of time looking for practical uses for electricity and one of the more amusing uses he found for it was in cooking. He used to cook turkeys using electricity and observed in his writing that the birds killed in this manner eat uncommonly tender. Uh, although I will say while doing this, while while frying a turkey with electricity, uh, he also electrocuted himself and he electrocuted himself so badly that his arms went numb for the rest of the day. And after that, he seems to have left the poor turkeys alone. Um, But he was also a big proponent of electrotherapy to the point that uh, one archaic medical procedure involving electricity, the so-called electric bath, actually became known as franklinization. Franklinization involves being placed on an insulated wooden stool and then sitting next to an electrode, uh, which would then build up a very large electric charge in your body. You'd end up with so much electricity in you, right, that you would glow in the dark. This is not a joke. This is 100% true. This was an actual medical treatment that people underwent, right? They would fill their bodies with electricity to the point that they glowed, right? And this would this would heat you up. You would It would increase your heart rate. You'd start sweating. It didn't actually, you know, have any beneficial medicinal purposes or anything like that. It, it didn't have any health benefits, and it quickly became known as just another area of quackery like – crystal healing and cupping and homeopathy. But unlike all that nonsense, at least Franklinization makes you glow in the dark, I guess. So it's it's got that going for it. Anyway, most famous of all, of course, when it comes to Benjamin Franklin and electricity, most famous of all is his kite experiment. This was an experiment that sought to prove that lightning is indeed made of electricity. Now, We might think today, well, yes, of course it is. That is almost self-evident. It's something that is extremely obvious. But no, back then, this was not a fact that was universally known or indeed accepted, right? Franklin published his thoughts in the Philadelphia Gazette. He proposed that a way to prove that lightning was electricity would be to fly a kite in a storm, a perfectly safe thing to do, of course uh franklin wrote an account of what this experiment might look like and i, and I can give you a rough idea of, uh, of of what it looked like here what you do you stand in a completely dry area under cover, right during the storm you have to be completely dry and you get two pieces of string you get two pieces of string one made of hemp one made of silk you tie the silk string to the hemp string uh you hold onto the silk string making sure it stays completely dry while the hemp string is attached to the kite and before the kite is sent up into the clouds a metal conductive rod is attached to the kite so as so as to attract electricity towards it at the bottom end of the hemp string which will get wet as it flies out uh, out of the window into the uh, into the storm at the bottom of this wet hemp string you tie a key and then of course you fly the kite up into the sky up into the storm clouds now Many people think that the uh, the kite actually gets struck by lightning, right? That's why you put the rod on it. No, not this. Is, this is not the case. There is actually enough electrical buildup. There's enough electrical charge in storm clouds for the conductive rod to gather an electrical charge without being struck by lightning. This charge then travels down the wet hempen string towards the metal key. It stops because it's unable to uh, enter the, it's unable to travel into the dry silk string that you're holding. And then if you put your finger very close, near to the key, an electrical spark will arc from the key to your finger. Now, Again, you need to stand under dry cover on, on an insulator. You need to hold a dry silken string and you need to make sure that the string doesn't touch the, the top of the window or the sides or anything else like that. But this experiment will work. I do not recommend that you try it out yourself at home, but it will work. Franklin correctly theorized with this, with this, uh, with this experiment that lightning and electricity are one and the same. This very well-reasoned description of the experiment suggests that Franklin had actually conducted it all, although there is a chance he may never have. Uh, And moreover, he wasn't the only scientist to investigate the link between lightning and electricity, and he also wasn't the first to prove it, but... He is certainly the most famous, sorry, Thomas Francois Dalibard, who also did this uh, uh, a month before Franklin published his experiment in the Gazette. Dalibard was the first person to prove that lightning and el- electricity were the same thing. But uh, more broadly, there is one very important lasting practical consequence of Franklin's work with electricity, quite aside from the theoretical implications of proving that lightning is indeed made of electricity. All of Franklin's investigation into and experiments with electricity resulted in the invention of the lightning rod, a conductive rod that you can mount on a building and then connect with a wire to a ground rod in the earth. And a lightning rod will attract lightning it will mean that lightning is much more likely to strike the rod and not the building to which the rod is affixed and harmlessly dissipate the lightning into the ground without damaging the building lightning rods are still used today to protect tall structures from lightning strikes so when i said that franklin's inventions have stuck around for a long time i mean they re i really mean it you can go and see lightning rods on many major modern buildings even today Franklin proposed this idea, suggesting the use of (coughs) upright rods of iron, made sharp as a needle and gilt to prevent rusting, and from the foot of those rods, a wire down the outside of the building into the ground. Would not these pointed rods probably draw the electrical fire silently out of a cloud before it came nigh enough to strike, and thereby secure us from that most sudden and terrible mischief? Well, Franklin put his money where his mouth was in avoiding this sudden and terrible mischief, too. He installed a lightning rod on his own home, and before long, they are affixed to the Academy of Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania State House, today known as Independence Hall, and as I say, today they're on all sorts of tall structures all around the world. Franklin's work with electricity was groundbreaking and extremely influential, and in and of itself would probably make him a notable historical figure. But there is so much more to talk about with this bloke. Uh, but before we move on once and, from, once and for all from his scientific career, I want to mention the fact that Franklin never obtained a patent for any of his inventions, which is, I think, an extremely admirable thing to have done or not to have done, I should say. And Franklin addressed this. he He explained why he made the decision not to profit off of any of his inventions in his autobiography. Here's what he wrote. <clears throat> As we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours. And this we should do freely and generously.
0: In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer.
1: Anyway, let's move now towards the 1760s, when Franklin entrenched himself in the world of colonial politics, which were becoming increasingly intense, of course, as the dawn of the American Revolution grew nearer. In 1757, he was sent from Pennsylvania to London, and there he spent years agitating for colonial reform. He did make occasional trips back to the colonies, back to Philadelphia, but much of his time throughout the 1760s and into the 1770s was actually spent in Europe. In the 1760s, revolutionary fervour in the British colonies mounted with the passage of things like the Stamp Act, one of the many taxes that uh, British colonists were so unhappy with. Franklin in London came to represent colonial opposition to measures like the Stamp Act, and he played a very important role in it being repealed. Franklin's reputation grew and grew in this time on both sides of the Atlantic. And as a prolific writer, of course, he began to write even more, more and more, Championing the interests of the colonies, he embedded himself with other radical political thinkers and activists in Britain who supported upheaval in the colonies and was outspoken in his defence of colonists in the British Parliament, which he addressed relatively often on colonial affairs. He argued against the idea that colonists should bear a tax burden for things like the French and Indian War. His point was that colonists in British America had been the ones on the ground doing the fighting on behalf of the British and therefore had more than paid their due that way. Um, And additionally, Franklin, who I have to say had owned slaves and had facilitated facilitated the buying and selling of slaves in his newspapers – He completely changed his view on slavery, I'm happy to say, during his time in Europe. And in a 1762 visit to Philadelphia, he revealed himself as an abolitionist and would go on to free the slaves that he owned and write extensively, attacking the institution of slavery, becoming an ardent supporter of abolitionism in his later years. Better late than never, Franklin was a slave owner for much of his life, it has to be said, but it is good that he was able to change his mind as he got older. Anyway, Franklin became known as a firebrand defender of the colonies and their interests in British America, but that wasn't all he did with his time in Europe. He travelled throughout the continent, he met many illustrious scientists of the time and he kept at his scientific work as well. He studied oceanography, he questioned why there were such enormous variations in travel times across the Atlantic, depending on m- seemingly minor variations in the routes that ship took, And this led to Franklin's charting of the Gulf Stream, which, again, he wasn't the first to discover, but he was very early in investigating, describing and charting out. It took a long time for ship captains to actually listen to the ideas that people like Franklin were putting forward, that there was a strong current around five kilometres an hour that pushed eastwards across the North Atlantic and slowed down ships that ignored it. And today, of course, we know all about the Gulf Stream. It's one of the reasons that Western Europe is so much milder than the east coast of North America but when Franklin's advice was finally picked up and listened to, ship captains cut weeks from their voyages as they sailed to avoid the current on the way from Europe to America. And finally, one last thing before we move on to Franklin's role in the American Revolution, one final thing that I found very, very interesting. This bloke, he he came up with a lot of things that today we take for granted, right? Franklin is the earliest recorded author of you're never going to guess what a pros and cons list today very common decision-making technique but the earliest the first recorded instance we have of a pros and cons list is in a 772 letter written by benjamin franklin again look maybe he wasn't the first person to use such a thing but he is certainly the first person we know to have used such a thing And the idea caught on. And now it's something that, I mean, we all do at one point or another when we're faced with a tricky decision. But it is now finally time, at long last, to move into the 1770s and talk about the American Revolution and Franklin's role within it. He is, of course, a key figure in the founding of the United States, an elder statesman, by the time that the revolution arrives, a famous and well-respected figure throughout the colony, someone who has been agitating for change and reform both domestically in North America through his newspaper and over on the other side of the Atlantic in Britain on the floor of Parliament. Franklin returned from Britain in 1775, a few weeks after the skirmishes at Lexington and Concord that began the American Revolution. And even as he pushed into his 70s in increasingly poor health, Franklin supported the cause of revolution wholeheartedly and, as I say, used his newspapers, used his political influence to try to bring as many people on side to the cause of revolution as he possibly could. He was appointed as the first ever Postmaster General of the United States because of his former experience as a Postmaster and was also sent by the state of Pennsylvania as their delegate to the Second Continental Congress. And it was then in 1776 that Benjamin Franklin was appointed as a member of the Committee of Five, along with John Adams, Robert Livingston, Roger Sherman, and of course, Thomas Jefferson. And the Committee of Five is very, very famous in American history, as this was the committee that authored the Declaration of Independence. At least officially, it was mostly Thomas Jefferson. But still, the Committee of Five get get the credit for their contributions. And, and Franklin, his contributions were admittedly minor, but are said to be have been very important. Franklin was suffering from gout. He didn't really get stuck into drafting the declaration. As I say, Jefferson did most of it. But Franklin provided notes and suggestions on Jefferson's first draft and was a very important figure, however you slice it in the Declaration's creation. And with the Declaration finally made and the American Revolutionary War in full swing, Franklin, who, as I mentioned, is a respected veteran of international politics, an elder statesman of this young nation, and in order to serve the interests of the United States, Franklin was once again sent back to Europe. In October 1776, he sailed for France, where he became the first U.S. ambassador to the French. And I think think I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Americans love to get stuck into the French. They love to slag off the French. But without France, the United States simply would not exist. French support was absolutely instrumental in the rebellious colonists fighting off the British during the American Revolution, and France was one of the very first nations to recognise the independence and sovereignty of the United States. And much of this was to do with Benjamin Franklin, who, as an ambassador, secured a military alliance between the nascent US and the French in 1778. Franklin used his political, scientific and social connections to represent the US and Europe during the revolution and helped the fledgling independence movement be taken seriously on the continent. And as the years passed and as the war continued and as the rebels gained the upper hand over the British, Franklin, of course, didn't play any real role in the fighting at all. I mean, he's over in France for the duration of the war. He did nonetheless play a huge role in Ending the fighting. In 1783, the American Revolutionary War came to an official end with the Treaty of Paris, which had been successfully negotiated and signed by Benjamin Franklin. And this brought about a US victory in the war and secured the independence and sovereignty of the United States moving forward. With his role in the 1783 Treaty of Paris, Benjamin Franklin helped secure the independence of the United States, and hope to secure a future for this young nation. But it was probably only the second most exciting thing that happened to him this year, to be honest, because in 1783, as listeners will remember, Benjamin Franklin was also present for the world's first ever hydrogen balloon flight. History of flight, episode 247, Get Across It. He He got up to a lot in France, quite aside from all the politicking he did. I want to tell you about Two final things before we head back to the United States for Franklin's final years. Number one, another one of Franklin's inventions that has stood the test of time. The story goes that uh, that while Franklin was in France, he got tired of needing to switch between the glasses that he used to see at a distance and the glasses that he used for seeing up close. And so what he did was this. He took the round lenses out of both sets of glasses and he cut them in half perfectly down the middle cut them into two half-moon shapes. And then he took one half of the glasses to see far away and one half of the glasses to see close up and stuck them together and then did this again with two other halves. So half of the circle was to see far away and half was to see close up. And then mounted these new newly affixed circular lenses, mounted them in a new set of glasses frames, so the top half of the glasses with the lenses used to see at a distance, the bottom half of the lenses used to see up close. So now he could focus on a speaker on the other side of the room through the top half of the glasses and then just glance down at notes in front of him through the bottom half without having to switch glasses over or anything. A genius invention still in use today. Bifocal eyeglasses and Franklin is generally thought to have invented them while living in France during this time. But even the bifocals, even the Treaty of Paris, all these things that he did while over there in France, they pale in comparison to his finest achievement during this time. Because it was in 1781, while living in France, that Benjamin Franklin produced his lifetime's most exceptional and outstanding work. Benjamin Franklin, legendary figure, in US history, founding father, signatory of the Declaration of Independence, inventor, scientist, politician, and diplomat, a true Renaissance man, is the author of an essay called Fart Proudly. And it is exactly what you'd think it might be. It is a letter in defence of flatulence enumerating the benefits of dropping your guts and suggesting ways in which we could help to normalise people ripping ass at the dinner table. It is an incredible piece of literature and I think I'll have to cover it in more detail. Keep an eye out for some quarter ass history on Fart Proudly in the coming time I think anyway. In 1785, with the American Revolutionary done and dusted, Franklin returned to the United States and was really only second to George Washington himself as a hero of the revolution and a preeminent figure in the young country's politics. Although uh, for all the influence that he had in the creation, foundation and early years of the United States, I I think it's here I should mention uh, how a story that's commonly shared about Benjamin Franklin is not in fact true. Uh, The common story goes that Franklin suggested that the national bird of the United States be the turkey. Uh, This is not true. The myth comes from a letter that he wrote to his daughter, criticizing criticizing the choice of the bald eagle. Uh, He wrote this. The bald eagle is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. He is too lazy to fish for himself. But uh, he does he does seem to have been a fan of turkeys, even if he didn't propose one as propose the turkey as the as the as the national bird of the United States, he still seemed to seem to be a fan of them. Here's what he thought of turkeys. A much more respectable bird, and with all a true original native of America. He is besides, though a little vain and silly, a bird of courage. But Franklin, even if he didn't stand in the way of the bald eagle becoming the symbol of America, he did not rest on his laurels when it came to being involved in the opening years of the United States. Uh, He became the president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. He was also elected the sixth president of the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania. He was essentially made the governor. Uh, and it was this position that made him the host of the 1787 Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, uh, to which he was also a delegate, although he didn't really take all that much part in the debate. Um, but he was there. He was there at the Con- Constitutional Convention. He was there for the creation of the U.S. Constitution. Um, he's well into his 80s. He's not in good health, but he was still one of the signatories to the Constitution. But after this, he withdrew from public life. The last years of his life were spent in Philadelphia, the city that even today identifies him as one of its greatest heroes, along with Rocky Balboa and Rob McElhenney. And it was in Philadelphia that at last Benjamin Franklin died at the age of 84 on the 17th of April, 1790. Benjamin Franklin is the only person to have signed the United States Declaration of Independence in 1776, the Treaty of Alliance with France in 1778, the Treaty of Paris in 1783, and the US Constitution in 1787. And this fact alone should go to show you just how deeply embedded he was in the establishment of the United States as a nation and how influential he was in shaping this young nation at a pivotal moment in the region's history. But then, on top of all of that, Franklin also found the time and energy to set up newspapers and invent things like the lightning rod and bifocals and challenge and expand our knowledge about the natural world and the processes within it, like electricity. He wasn't a morally perfect man, not by any means, but he tried to be. He gave himself to abolitionism later in life. He was an outspoken proponent of inoculation and vaccination after losing a child to smallpox. And he sought to offer moral instruction and guidance to the people who read his writing, read his newspapers and listened to the things that he had to say, even as a very young man, right through to his later years. His 84 years on this earth were not wasted. He lived a full life seeking constant self-improvement, He addressed and worked on his flaws. He encouraged and aided others in living lives of virtue. And he helped to shape the course of history along the way. Today, he is a legendary figure within the U.S. Found on the U.S. $100 note, countless places in the United States are named after him. And a portrait of Benjamin Franklin hangs in the Oval Office in the White House. And his influence isn't just felt in the U.S. No matter where you are, The next time you put on your bifocals to help you write out a pros and cons list about getting struck by lightning, think of Benjamin Franklin and his enormous contributions to the world that we live in today. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Benjamin Franklin, a bloke who really seems to have just got out of bed every morning, ready to seize that particular day and wrestle it into submission. Such a fascinating story. Really, really interesting to get across. It. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with all the boring housekeeping stuff here, but a, but a quick note, a quick and important note before before you uh, you rush off. Uh, anyone who, on their feed that they're listening to and on the feed that they use to access the show, anyone who doesn't see quarter ass history coming up, You're on the old feed. I don't know why and I don't know how, but you do need to let me know so I can fix it for you. There are some podcast platforms that are still, for whatever reason, scrubbing the old feed. I am trying to fix this one feed at a time. Um, so, if if you wouldn't mind, uh, head over to halfarsedhistory Use the contact form and let me know which podcast app you are using, right, in order to uh, to access the show. If Quarter Quarterarsed History does not show up on your feed, I'd love to fix that for you so you can listen to those shows. But I need to know which app you're using. Um, and uh, if you let me know which one it is, I'll I'll get in touch with them. Hopefully, hopefully we can get it fixed uh, very quickly. I've I've had to fix a bunch of uh, a bunch of problems with a bunch of different apps, and, and most of them with most of them has been absolutely fine. Anyway. Uh, boring housekeeping stuff, yes. HalfhouseIssue.net, contact form, uh, Patreon. Thank you very much to all the patrons supporting me, gaining access to all sorts of stuff behind the scenes, show notes, uncut episodes, early access to shows, ad free listening, of course. Um, and thank you to the people who are out there in the trenches spreading the good word telling people about the show um it's been great to uh it's been great to see new listeners coming in good good to see old listeners coming back as well thanks for not giving up on the show your continued interest in this show is uh is immensely appreciated and not taken for granted so thank you for being here and thank you for contributing to the success of half-assed history looking forward to coming back next week with more nonsense of course quarter-assed history in the meantime out every wednesday night australia time so keep an eye out for that but uh that's it we're going to wrap things up, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Pocket Pool Champ in all caps, who asks What caused thunder before Benjamin Franklin discovered lightning?